Once upon a time, there were four little rabbits. How old are you, Johnny? She asked. Sixteen. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. A wise old king once said, of the making of books, there is no end. How true today. Of the overabundance of writing published each year, what's worth reading? The answer is simple. Read only the best. Come join the discussion on Just the Best Literature. Well, hello again, everyone. Thanks for listening in today. Well, in our last episode, we had a great discussion about uh, the book within the book or Goldstein's uh, treatise on uh, Ingsoc or English Socialism. And of course, we know it's George Orwell doing that. So uh, today, I want to get right back into our discussion of 1984, especially in book two. I'd like to try and finish book two today, but I have my doubts we're going to do that. So to help me do this today, with me in the studio again is Mr. Grant Turgeon. Welcome back, Grant. Hello, thanks. And also, uh, James Brandon is still not back with us, but uh, we're going to bring him in at the end. He's not going to get out of this. We're also (laughs) going to bring the ladies back together at the end, so we're going to have, wow, we're going to have the big group. (laughs) <laughs> nice. We'll have groupthink. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so we've been discussing, um, you know, the, uh, the the Goldstein book, with the book within the book, and this is book two. And uh, the last time we were, we were uh, talking about how uh, the goal of the upper class, or I think we could also say Oceana, who is the, like, the, I think they represent the high class of the three classes, um, you know, how they want to keep control of the world. And, of course, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, that uh, Grant and I were talking about last time is, you know, they really want, they hate, they hate capitalism. And, of course, we're hearing so much of that today. Um, but they also, as we were talking about, they want to keep people stupid. And, of course, that's why they developed the whole idea of doublethink. And, uh, you know, they, they really want to keep that going. And I think I think last time we also talked about you know how they they want to keep control of the goods, you know, of society, and it's it's like they give people just enough so they don't die of starvation, and then every now and then they give them a little bit more to make them happy. Say, wow, look what the government gave us, you know, <laughs> and so so how I'll, I'll let Grant just you know talk a little bit more about this, but we're seeing that. With with the uh, the democratic side of the government right now, they want to give more. I mean, uh, I th- I think we we should have learned a lesson from the first stimulus package, and uh, I I think people were afraid that if they start, you know, giving people that are on on uh, unemployment an extra six hundred dollars, plus their unemployment, it's going to be hard to get them back to work. England learned that. We've learned it, and and now. The, they they want to have another stimulus package, and the Democrats will not. They won't learn that lesson. I think some people in the Trump administration have learned it, so they cut back. They're saying, "Okay, we'll still help a little bit, but we're going to cut back." I think they cut it back to what two hundred or four hundred. And the Democrats went nuts. They want to give more. So well, as usual, this Democratic push is accompanied by a lot of lies because the way that they present it, it's like. The people who are unemployed are only going to get 200 or 400 a week. No, that's on top 
of um, your unemployment money. Right. And it took me a bit of digging to even get to the bottom of that because the way they presented it was so unclear right. as to prevent confusion and, of course, for a lot of people to stoke outrage. Like the Republicans just want you to really suffer while you're right. in lockdown. No, they just don't want to cripple every business in the country by motivating people to stay home and never work again. That means that all the business employees are not coming back once this thing is over. That that doesn't make any sense, and that's how a nation will easily collapse. Of course, the Republicans don't want to go along with that. Right, right. And so, so the thing the thing that we're that we're learning is, uh, you know, it's nice that open the the restaurants have been opened up in this area. And the people are so happy to be back at work, and you know because I, I guess even when you're I guess in the a waitress, you know, um, I guess their probably their unemployment isn't that great anyway, and they probably do they probably do better with their tips, yeah. and so so they're happy to get back to work. Yeah, so well, it really is unnatural to spend a long amount of time not doing anything with your life. We've all had days off that are pretty enjoyable but then pretty soon after a vacation we're usually pretty happy to get back into the routine because because we know if we just spent every day of the year not doing a whole lot then it it wouldn't be fulfilling and it would it would start to mess with you mentally a lot of people have realized that they probably didn't like going into work necessarily before but at least they realize it does provide some sort of structure and purpose to your day and people do appreciate that now more than they used to right I remember one time that uh, we we are awfully busy around here, and uh, my wife and I we we had some uh, access to frequent flyer miles and and uh, hotel points, and we we uh, decided to go out for a long weekend, and we went to one of the islands, and uh, I won't say wherever it was, but uh, we didn't tell really anybody where we were going. They just knew we were going away. After my third day on the island, I said, I am so bored. I can't wait to get <laughs> exactly. out of here. Exactly. <laughs> that's what always happens, it seems like. <laughs> I mean, uh, the people on the island loved it because that's, every, that's what they were used to. Mm-hmm. But uh, w- one thing when we, we talk about the book, uh, when, you, when you look, when, when Winston is first reading the book, of course, he's, uh, he's you know, Julia's right there with him, and she's sleeping, and, and uh, you know, he, he doesn't... Uh, really spend a whole lot of time uh, reading. And to, to really get back into this whole first chapter of it, you have to go later in the book where you know, he reads a little bit of it. But then uh, she, she wakes up and, and uh, of course, you know, one of the things we said about Julia last time, she could care less about history. She could care less about the inner party. She could care less about socialism. She just cares what she wants. And... Uh, but but I think if you go back later and and it's like uh, the the original pages that say in, in the book that I was working with it's like one sixty five one sixty seven that's where he starts reading but then the full explanation of ignorance is strength instead of just giving you one paragraph you then get the whole book and uh, you know then it's really socialism is described and so so you don't want to miss that for all of you that are out there reading it you want to make sure that you read all of it and it gets a lot more interesting when you get to the get to that let's say the full chapter 
and uh, this is page 182. He's talking about the, the, what they call the new, new uh, aristocracy. It says, the new aristocracy was made up for the most part of bureaucrats, scientists, technicians, trade union organizers, publicity experts, sociologists, teachers, journalists, and the professional politicians. These people whose origins lay in the salaried middle class and the upper, upper grades of the working class had been shaped and brought together by the barren world of monopoly industry and centralized government. As compared with their opposite numbers in past ages, they were less avari- uh, avaricious, less tempted by luxury, hungry for more for pure power, and above all, more conscious of what they were doing and more intent on crushing opposition. And so, so what what uh, what Goldstein is saying? This was not good. The new ar- new aristocracy was a real threat to who? The hierarchy. Right. And so, so essentially, by the time, you know, we, we get into to this uh, 1984, they've got all that stopped, don't they? Well, it is interesting that um, that is really what the party in the book is all about, too. They, especially the inner party, like the more the, you advance within the party, the book shows, the more you are just a fanatic and you are guided by rage. And it also talks about how the even though you're not necessarily making a luxurious living within the party you're still content that you have more than other people right. really so it's not about being rich to be rich it's about comparing yourself to others constantly and just trying to stay a level above those people even if you're all relatively miserable it's just amazing how that whole socialist mentality is about constantly comparing your lifestyle to others and being either jealous of other people and what they have, or you just want to make sure that they continue to have less than you. It's just such a really a selfish, evil mentality. Right. And it's, it's especially prominent in these inner party members. They care about power way more than they do about wealth because right. to them really personal possessions don't mean a whole lot because the party controls everything. If they're part of the party, they also control everything, even if not personally. Right. I I think for socialism, I think the safe thing we could say there is the true wealth to them is the power. Yes. That's what they they want, the power. And and essentially, they don't want anyone to have any more than they do. They don't want that. You know, and so, so... even if you look at, you know, I, I think if you look at O'Brien, you know, he's got a bigger flat. He might have a car. You know, he might have, as he even said in the book, he may have a helicopter. But do you think he's any happier? I mean, he's a real, he's a real, he's he's kind of isolated. He's by himself, you know, um, you know, and, and of course, well, we don't want to get to book three yet, but... Uh, I mean, but like you were just saying, he's full of rage. He's full of rage. He's full of hate. Mm-hmm. And and he's not happy unless he can make someone like Winston just like himself. Well, you know, actually, the first time I read 1984, I misunderstood some of the parts about the inner party because I was thinking, wow, he really does have a lot of luxury and leisure in his life. He really, He really is doing well, better than anyone today is that's not true i mean people today they have the richest people today have 30 mansions and 100 cars so o'brien certainly is nowhere near that level 
But the only thing that matters is that he has more than the people below him, and especially in terms of the power, that's what matters. So O'Brien, in terms of wealth compared to people today, he doesn't have as much, but the gap between him and even other people lower in the party or the proles is monstrous. It's so huge. It's, It's bigger than we could even imagine a gap being between people today, really. Right, right, yeah. So so anyway, it's it's uh it, it is I think it's really it's it's really a fascinating book and you don't want you don't want to uh, miss that. I, I think one of the things that uh, maybe we could just move it is this is still in part of the book, but where where Winston comes to the point where he realizes that Big Brother may never die. <laughs> You know, this is like on page 185, it says, Given this background, what can infer, if one did not know it already, the general structure of oceanic society? At the apex of the pyramid comes Big Brother. Big Brother is infallible and all-powerful. Every success, every achievement, every victory, every scientific discovery, all knowledge, all wisdom, all happiness, all virtue are held to, issued directly from his leadership and inspiration. Nobody has ever seen Big Brother, he is a face on the on the uh, hoardings, a voice in the telescreen, or yeah, his hoardings. He may reasonably be sure that he will never die, and there is already considerable uncertainty as to when he was born. <laughs> <laughs> now that's Stalin. Even in Animal Farm, you know they have all the you know, you know he's the the uh, the friend of the sheep. He's the you know he's the father of the animals. He's and and so so. Here, I think Orwell is bringing that same concept into this book that that they do, you know, that they want this leader, and it, it becomes a religion for them. Right, and the fact that he's named Big Brother, like no one even knows the leader's real name, or if there really even is just one leader, and the nation doesn't even have a capital. It's like they really are, the party is really extreme to where Big Brother is almost like, People don't know if he's an idea or if he's an actual person. And the real thing that matters is that the party's in charge. Like, it really is a collective power, it seems like. It's not really in one person at the very top. It's just the party in general rules absolutely everything. And then later in this book within the book, it talks about how the party tears down family, yet they call their supposed leader... Big brother. brother. Right. Like the contradictions are endless within English socialism. They're trying to engender love within people for big brother, but the party itself doesn't like traditional family at all. Right. Right. The, 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 I I think that, um, maybe we could just, uh, you know, stay, stay in the book. I kind of got out of the book a little bit, but I just wanted to bring that up about big brother. And uh, like you just said, that's the family. They they want socialism to be like a family, but yet, look at how they treat each other. Right. You know, they don't treat each other very well. I think you made a good point there. Like it is their religion. You yeah. know, the government is their god and their family because they don't actually have any of that in their individual lives. Yes. Like like who's really? I, I know the big question. Even a lot of your your conservative commentators is. They really call Joe Biden a puppet, you know. So, so who's the big brother behind him, you know? And I think it's pretty obvious it's the Obamas, right? You know? So, so uh, um, you know, 
the the Obamas never. I mean, I remember, I remember hearing this myself when President Obama thought maybe maybe I should try and get a third term. Well, they thought they were going to get a third term through Hillary Clinton, mm-hmm. and they couldn't do it. But it looks like if Joe Biden would win, he has to get seventy million votes, though. By the way, to win. Huh. And uh, that's that's a lot of votes. That is. Yeah, seventy million to win, but but it looks like that's what they want. Okay, they're going to roll through. I mean, why did they bring Michelle Obama out the first night? You know, it's just it's just uh, uh, amazing. Yeah, it's it's also funny because the Obamas took forever to even endorse Joe Biden, oh, I but know. now that he's the only option left, it is like this is their only chance really to extend their own power it seems like that's what they're concerned about the same thing with when he when he was campaigning for hillary clinton last election cycle he was saying a vote for her is a vote for me if you liked my presidency you definitely need to vote for her i mean he it really is all about uh, propping him up and and truly he is really the only pretty much universally loved star it, within the radical left, there's so many divisions within that party, right. so many factions, but everyone seems to have liked Obama pretty well. At right. least his personality, his charisma, his uh, style of leadership that they appreciated. He is sort of the unifying force, the you could say the the big brother within their side. Right. One thing I think is, is uh, another thing I think we need to bring up from the book is that that gets revealed is what are the aims of the party now i don't i think that uh you know o'brien was really working hard on him to get him on his side so he could actually nail him this isn't what they told everybody now this was just in the goldstein book of course goldstein doesn't exist you know he's made up obviously he's he's made up but this is on the bottom of like i said 171 of my book but but it's it's um it's on the same page for uh, for Mr. Grant Turgeon here. Uh, it's it's where they're talking about doublethink, mm. and uh, you know um, that uh, you know that's how knowledge is neutralized is through doublethink. But at the bottom of that page, it says the two aims of the party are one is to conquer the whole surface of the earth, and two to extinguish once and for all. The possibility of independent thought. Now, yeah. that's chilling because isn't that what you have today? I mean, it, it, if you look at, um, let's say, j- just, just from what has been shown about Black Lives Matter, you can't disagree with them and, them, and you can't sit down and have a debate. You can't sit down and say, "Hey, did you ever look at it this way?" You can't. You can't do that. You know, they. You've got to. You've got to believe it their way, or you don't have any. You can't believe it, and that's that's. You you hear the, the same thing coming out of you know Joe Biden. You hear the same thing coming out of Nancy Pelosi. You know that even some of her own supporting media have asked her questions, and she said, "No, no, no, no. You don't ask, You know, you don't ask that." I don't have to answer that, and really, that's the whole that's the whole job behind the media is to ask those tough questions, and uh, you know, but but they don't want to, 
they don't want to have to answer to anybody. Right. Well, it's that I think that whole Black Lives Matter phrase is a, a perfect example of double think because everyone knows it is a specific organization and a one minute internet search will tell you everything that that organization stands for. But then the left pivots and says, well, you don't believe black lives matter. Like you don't believe the truth of that statement. You don't think that lives of that race are important. Yes, that's are. the way they change it. But they know that it's talking about a specific organization. That's where the specific term came from. And that's the only reason that anyone at all even objects to it because right. they, it's a Marxist organization. And they know that, but they, they perpetuate the lie and, and they, they pivot to make it about the other side being racist. Right. And you, you can see some people that get challenged will say, well, all lives matter. And you know, they're trying to not say, well, white lives matter too, because then as soon as you say white lives matter, what are you? Right. You're a racist. Yeah. You know, so. Well, even that term, that, that term is way unnecessarily divisive. Even if it were not the name of a Marxist organization, to say that black lives matter, there is a connotation, whether they want to admit it or not, that they're only talking about one specific Race. group. Yeah. I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't even... They they always use the example of different types of cancer. Well, you wouldn't say colon cancer matters as if you had to say that and as if all the other ones don't. That's what it sounds like. You would just say cancer matters and we need to deal with it. You you might have a group about fixing colon cancer, but you wouldn't insinuate that all the other types of cancers were irrelevant. That's what the le it's a simple understanding of the English language and you know what they're insinuating when they say Black Lives Matter. They're right. insinuating that all the other ones don't. Right. So, so the thing is, um, if, if you go back and uh, you know, turn back and you read through, um, uh, you know, uh, let's see, the first chapter is Ignorance is Strength. Go back and make sure all of you out there that are listening, uh, make sure you read through all of that to really, to really begin to understand that. Um, one one other thing I think it, that's important to bring out about the book, and we're seeing this so much. It says the uh, this is on page one one eighty nine of that chapter, um, and it tells you what's expected of the of the party members. But on on this page, page one eighty nine, it's 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 a uh, it's right around where they talk about the ministry of love, um, you know. But but here it says the alteration of the past is necessary for two reasons, one of which is subsidiary and so to speak precautionary. The subsidiary reason is that the party member, like the proletarian, tolerates present day conditions partly because he has no standards of comparison. All right, he must be cut off from the past just as he must be cut off from foreign countries because it is necessary for him to believe that he is better off than his ancestors and that the average level of material comfort is constantly rising. But the far more important reason for the readjustment of the past is the need to safeguard the infallibility of the party. Now, I mean, look at what we've been experiencing in this country with, you know, with the tearing down of statues, you know, of, you know, our, our beloved founders that that have really worked hard, you know, to uh, to establish, you know, a free society where people can, you know, you can excel. And we have a lot of 
you know, um, very successful blacks who said they, they, they could never have done what they've done if they hadn't been in this country. And so, so there's a real benefit. And, and uh, you know, the, the thing is, uh, it, it's just amazing how many times we've heard, and of course, uh, you know, I, I do listen to Fox. I don't listen to it every night, but I do listen to Fox. But, you know, here, here you have some of these, you know, black government officials are saying we need to get rid of every history book in our schools until we can rewrite it. And they're going to they're gonna revise history. They're not going to rewrite history. They're not going to make it better. But, but here, Orwell was, was very much aware that, you know, if you get a Soviet-style communism or a Soviet-style socialism, they're going to wipe out your history. Because they, 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 it's like they numb your brain. Yeah, exactly. And I think the book within the book also uh, makes a great analogy here. It says, cut off from contact with the outer world and with the past, the citizen of Oceania is like a man in interstellar space who has no way of knowing which direction is up and which is down. I mean, that's exactly what is happening in the educational system with the media. They'll just brazenly deny that certain Democrat leaders said whatever they clearly said. They'll just move on. They would focus on that and they would harp on that to no end if a Republican did the exact same thing. But they whitewash it and they get rid of it and they ignore it forever if a Democrat did it. And, you know, I, I saw a piece the other day about how there's also a movement to change a lot of the black heroes of American history who happen to be conservative and Republican into at least seeming like they were Democrats, like like Frederick Douglass, for example. Right. They try to make it seem like because he had debates against Abraham Lincoln, he was on perhaps the Democrat side. No, but not. of course he wasn't because <laughs> the Democrats wanted to keep slavery. I, you know, I, I think the, the, maybe the saddest thing that I've heard recently is I, you know, I just completed uh, an article on feminism. And I, I did in the article, I covered the stages of it. Um, but I also showed, this is, I, I got a book from, uh, Mona Sharon, who is, uh, she worked, she writes for National Review. She's, you know, pretty, uh, very educated, uh, person. And she really, you know, loves the idea of family and how necessary family is. And, um, you know, she, she says some, some interesting things in there. Um, and, you know, of course I... I learned a little bit about Susan B. Anthony and, you know, some of these. <laughs> and you know that President Trump, she, she voted one time without having approval. Mm-hmm. And President Trump pardoned her right. recently. And, uh, you know, I think he's giving her some type of Medal of Honor or something. And now, now they want to cancel her. Right. They're Everything he does. Her. Everything he does, no matter but, what he says or does, they have to take the opposite but, position. But there are women in this there are women in this movement that, what, just a few weeks ago would praise Susan Anthony. Of course. And now, they're, now they want to get rid of her as like she was a racist or something. And so, so, you know, here's what he goes on to say in the book. It says, the mutability of the past is the central tenet of Ingsoc. <laughs> in other words, you know, you can change it as you need to to, to, work, your, to work your plan, you know. 
Yes. And so now Susan B. Anthony is going to be a white racist slave holder or something <laughs> like that, you know. Well, you know, it seems like there is a common theme between the book 1984 and the way that Mr. Trump gets treated today uh, in within the party, within English socialism. The party is good. Big Brother is good. And you have to distort every fact in the world around you to back up the obviously true premise that Big Brother is good. And it's the opposite in this situation where there are people who believe that Mr. Trump is evil. And so whatever he did, he must have scoured the history books, found out that Susan B. Anthony was a secret racist, and then decided to pardon her. Because there's no possible way he could have done something that was good because he is bad. That's the way they look at it, and they have to distort all reality to meet with that one wrong premise. Right. It's just, it's just uh, I don't know, it's, it's actually not only shocking, it's sickening. Yes. I mean, I have to, I have to say that. And, and again, I mean, looking back on it, um, let's say, uh, you know, the feminist movement, I mean, they, they wouldn't even have considered themselves necessarily feminist at the time. They were into suffrage. They wanted to vote. But they were also... You know, they wanted to have the slaves free. They wanted education for people. They wanted families intact. Uh, you know, Susan B. Anthony, those original women, would never have wanted abortion. No. You know, so, so. but anyway, um, that's that's for another program. And again, uh, I just have to tell everyone that we are now out of time again for today's <laughs> program. So, uh, but that's why it's so good to have you around and James. <laughs> so that's all the time we have for today's program. But next time, we will... Really work hard to finish uh, our discussion of book three. Hopefully you can come back, Mr. Turgeon. Definitely. Uh, we'd like to have you back and maybe we'll try and get James back because we still have a lot to discuss about this book and how this how this ends, how, the, how his reading session ends. All right, so you can buy 1984 at Amazon.com. You can find a copy of, your, of it in your local bookstore. And, of course, you can also check your local library. So please write me any comments you may have to jbl at pcog.org. You can follow JBL on Twitter at JBLiterature1. You can also follow JBL on Facebook. Simply search for Just the Best Literature. So until next time, keep reading. You've been listening to Just the Best Literature on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG. Streaming online at kpcg.fm and thetrumpet.com.